Welcome to DLN Extend. We choose topics covered by the Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation right here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss Gaming, and the latest show, Hardware Addicts. I'm Nate, a Linux fitness and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. And I'm Eric, a web technologist and Linux aficionado. So Nate, what have you been up to this week? Really, uh, not a whole lot, uh, technology-wise. I did happen to fix my robotic sweeper. That was fun. Interesting. It really wasn't that complicated. So uh, imagine a Swiffer in a ring that spins around and wanders around your floor pretty much aimlessly. That's what it is. It's been great because it keeps my floor nice and clean. I just run it every morning or a couple times a day, maybe. It happened to um, roll around uh, some hair and string around the axle. And uh, so all of a sudden, it started moving around the the floor very labored. Well, since Santa brought it to me, I I couldn't just, you know, throw it out. So I had to figure out what was wrong with it, right? It really wasn't that big a deal. Eight screws, the lower piece, like a plate on the bottom of it, took that off. And it was just a matter of working really hard and removing the string and hair and whatnot around the axle. It gave new meaning to the idea of getting wrapped around the axle, that's for sure. So I'm glad I have that done and fixed and, and cleaning the floor once again. I'm amazed in one day how dirty my floor gets. Even if I'm hardly home, it still gets dirty. And I, I don't know how that happens. I, I really don't. It does seem to happen that way. And, you know, having children, they are just masters of tracking things and <laughs> making messes. Now, at this point, I don't want to go without a robotic sweeper in the house. That's one less thing I have to worry about. It's funny how those types of things that you never really even thought you needed, and then you have them, and they do something useful, and you go, you know, life's better now. I think I, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. You hit the nail right on the head right there. So what about you, Eric? What's been going on? Well, I've been making some more videos, trying to get back into the swing of things. I had a bit of a brief spurt there right after the new year where I was really inspired and motivated and doing all sorts of different things. And uh, that kind of trailed off a little. I think I ran out of a little steam and just had other things in life get in the way. But I've been trying to get back to being a little more regular about looking at things, making content, really been looking at things that, you know, me that are not necessarily mainstream. I brought up video cutting tools, video trimming tools. When I have longer videos, rather than bringing those into a traditional video editor and having to render them out, taking all that time, these trimming tools make it easier to just literally trim pieces of it and then keep those pieces either as individual files or combined into a larger file, but having trimmed out the pieces I don't want. And then that just makes it a faster process when I'm editing videos. I didn't see people talking about them or don't find much information on them. So I thought, hey, this is one of those topics that I sort of specialize in these weird things that other people don't cover. So that was my motivation for that one. And then just things like setting up NVIDIA Optimus on Arch. I found a better way to do that. Uh, I recorded another episode of the LibreOffice Calc series with Surge. I didn't see that one yet. Did you, did you publish the Surge episode? 
the new one? I have not published the new one yet. I did record it and I need to get that out there. It was actually based off of your suggestion around using if statements. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was sort of the inspiration for it. So I'll be getting that out soon. I'm looking forward to that. Now, to, to go back on the, uh, the trimming tools discussion, I watched that. And I, one, I had no idea those things existed. And I was thinking how nice that would be for, you know, sometimes I, I just need to trim up a video. In fact, I have one, that project where I trimmed it up into 24 different segments for different purposes. And that video would have been really handy about 12 weeks ago. So um, if you could go back in time and do that video, that'd be really helpful. You know what? I'll, I'll look into that for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would have been, that is a perfect tool right there. Your response is exactly the same response I got out of many people, which was, oh, I've never really heard of this. This is really handy, and I would probably use this in lots of different ways. For sure. And so I appreciate that particular video there. I really do. In our community segment this week, we had a topic in the forum, in the discourse forum, about Linux laptop and what brands of laptops people were using which suggestions they had. And this kind of dovetails into some of the times we've talked about the idea of smaller manufacturers filling a need that larger manufacturers aren't filling. Now, I've had good luck with Dell laptops, specifically laptops that weren't built to run Linux, but it just so happens that almost all of the time, Dell laptops run Linux pretty well. And I think that's sort of the same thing you could say about Lenovo ThinkPads and maybe some other models and brands out there as well. But it's interesting to see Tuxedo Computers and System76 and some of these other manufacturers that are serving those needs. And like we've talked about in the past, how nice it would be to get a system that already has Linux on it, that is fully supported by a company, that they've got all of the software you'd need, all the hardware compatibilities there. You look at one of the features in the upcoming 5.5 kernel for Linux actually has System76 software in it. And it's it's just interesting to see that someone like System76 was able to get something like that promoted into the mainline kernel. And I think that shows the importance of these manufacturers. So that was really the interesting part of the conversation to me was that everybody seemed to have an opinion. And from what I could tell, they were all good opinions and good options. I will say I share your opinion as far as Dell goes. I've been using Dell on Linux since 2004. And I've never had a Dell fight me in Linux. And that's Anything from Inspirons to Latitudes and One Precision. They all seem to just work well well with Dell. And I, I wonder if it's, is it due to their contributions to Linux or if it's the fact that they tend to gravitate toward hardware that is not problematic? I don't know. Regardless, I really like the, the Latitude line. It's a very solid machine. I would say it's nothing extravagant. It's not, not anything like really spectacular hardware wise but it just seems to work super well you know it's like a it's like a toyota corolla and maybe that's not the right term no that's that's actually a good analogy it is a dependable when you buy a toyota you in general know that you're going to get a dependable vehicle that's going to last a long time and in general just work very well when i think of brand loyalty Dell is one of those things that has stood the test of time for me. I've had many, many Dell desktops and laptops, and all of them have worked very well. Anytime I've had issues, they've been very good with warranty, with support. This laptop that I have had actually had an issue with one of the fans. They're very small fans, and they spin fast, and if they're not perfectly balanced, they make a little bit of noise, and this one made noise. I contacted support 
And they said, well, you can send it back in and we'll fix it. And I was like, you know, I really am not comfortable sending my laptop in. Would you just send me the fans? I'm comfortable replacing them myself, thinking there's no way they're going to do this, right? Because that's not how they support their products. Right. Sure enough, the guy was like, sure, yeah, we'll send you two new fans. They <laughs> they sent me the kit. Huh. The entire kit, it even had the uh, the heat pipes and like the whole thing, the whole thermal assembly. Wow. And all I had to do was send back the parts I didn't use. And so I replaced them. They're perfect. And I sent it back. And so, yeah, there was an issue with that fan, but they stood behind the product and everything's perfectly fine. Wow. And that's the experience I've had with them over the years. And I think your question about why does Linux work well on their hardware? I mean, one is, yes, it's mainstream hardware and sort of generic in a sense that they are using well-known products. Their components are mainstream, right? They're not, some manufacturers go out of their way to build very custom solutions to things. And Dell tends to use more standard. I mean, they, they do customize them if you look at their Alienware. I mean, there's definitely some things they do that are not standard. The other thing I think that it comes down to is the adoption rate and how many people actually use the hardware. So when you look at drivers that are built into the kernel and hardware that's supported, it's going to be for mainstream things first and then sort of trickle down. And so when you think about Lenovo ThinkPads, one of the reasons they work so well, it isn't so much because Lenovo is deliberately making it compatible. It's that a lot of people use them. And so of course, they're going to be well supported. I think the same is true of Dell. There's enough people using Dell that there's going to be support for it. And also you look at their Sputnik program where they have the developer laptops and they have over the years been supporting Linux in one way or another, maybe not in a large way, but they are at least there are people within the organization who run Linux on those systems, test those systems. And so um, that's probably why we have as good a support as we do. I imagine also the fact they have a lot of enterprise deployments. They can't faff around with anything weird and uh, make sure it's well tested, even on the Windows side as well. Yeah, and that's not to say it's perfect. This XPS, like I said, it was never intended to run Linux. So there's a fingerprint sensor on the power button that doesn't work under Linux because there's no driver for it. The company that makes it doesn't provide a Linux-compatible driver. It will probably never work. It would be nice if it worked, but you a fingerprint sensor is really not the end of the world for me. Everything else works so well that I really can't complain about that. But back to the idea of buying something from System76 or Tuxedo or one of these manufacturers that is providing a system that is fully compatible, I do think that that would be a really interesting experience. And just to open it up, turn it on, have a distribution already installed, have it all work the way it's supposed to, and to just feel like it's a first class device. It's, you know, it's, we, we talked about that idea several months ago of how odd it sounds to say a flagship Linux device. Right. But then you look at these companies that are making these devices and, and how System76 is going to manufacture their own laptop chassis and really start to make their own equipment in a very holistic way. And that's absolutely going to be a flagship device. I would say that that's a good point, though. I've never turned on a machine and had Linux already installed on it. And I, I guess maybe and we've really talked about this before. I never really thought about it in that way. But that feeling of opening up the box, you know, removing the cellophane and pulling it out, plugging it into the wall, you know, as, as you unwind a brand new charger and that smell of that fresh plastic, plugging it in and seeing any Linux distribution, that has to be a really good feeling. I, I don't know what that's like, but seeing that like on a System 76, you know, or um, I guess or Dell for that matter, or, or Tuxedo, that's got to be really a really great experience. And I really wonder what that experience would be like, actually. 
now that now that we talk about it, like I'm I'm now fantasizing as far as you wouldn't have driver issues. It would just run. Uh, that means there's no more finding how to get something to run. So do you think there'd be a, a loss of enjoyment with that? Or do you think it'd just be like a, a pure pleasure cruise? I think it'd be a pleasure cruise personally. And, and I'm that guy that every time Dell says that they have the XPS 13 developer edition, I go, okay, where's the 15? Because I, I just, I prefer the larger screen. Uh-huh. And they always, you know, say, oh yeah, that's something we'll consider. So if they actually do release a 15 inch XPS developer edition that's fully supported on Linux at some point in the future, maybe when I'm done with this laptop, that'll be my next one. Or by then maybe System76 has got something that's really compelling and they, and they already do, but I mean, maybe it'll just be the better choice at that point. And also we talked about this a little bit, hopefully what we saw at CES this year with AMD's new uh, mobile processor line, that's filtering in and then we start to see real options for AMD, that would be really interesting for me. Yes, it would. I hope that in the next generation or the next two generations when I'm ready to upgrade from this system that there are options like that. So I think the future is pretty bright for Linux-specific devices, Linux-specific hardware, and I'm looking forward to those options being available. Yeah, me too. I have this uh, tablet right now, the Galaxy Tab S4 Samsung, and I was looking for how to run Linux on it, and it's really not easy, but everyone kept saying, oh, yeah, it's the Dex thing, and unfortunately, it's kind of done now. So I've got this tablet that's really just kind of useless. It's Android is, eh, every time I turn it on and try to use it, I'm just never really happy with it. So I am interested in a Linux-based tablet, but I'm kind of hoping that the Pine Tab is something solves that. Same. I like. I just want something that will just do Linux nicely. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a screaming, like, insane desktop-level performance or something. It just needs to be good enough that I can use it, that the touch interface isn't laggy, that the animations are fast enough that it doesn't feel sluggish. But if it takes five seconds to open a browser, like, whoopity-doo, you know, I don't care. I'm fine with that, you know, especially if the battery life is better because of it. Yep, I totally agree. I just need a tablet that'll just be like a, just a pad that I can pull up information, PDFs or whatever. That's most of what I want. I I don't need anything much more than that. I mean, I guess maybe watching Netflix would be nice, but outside of that, I don't really care. Yeah, as long as it supports browsers that can do the DRM stuff that they need. Right. Yeah, that. For, uh, For Netflix. Yeah, that would be good. Because I don't really use many apps on a tablet. Nope. You know, it's really much more about the browser and that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be a lot more challenging with the phones and not having the apps. I think for me, it's the, what's the compelling argument for a tablet in general? I, I guess I still struggle with that. It's a media device. It, it, it's a media device and browsing. I mean, that's really all a tablet is right. for me. Yeah, same. That's pretty much how I look at it, too. Certainly not a desktop replacement device. No. No, I think you're crazy to think that. It's like a, bro- it's like a laptop without a keyboard. Why would I want that? <laughs> so I'm broke off the keyboard. <laughs> right. I right. want the keyboard. Right. Exactly. That's... that's the part that I want. I need a physical tactile keyboard that I can, <laughs> I can touch keys and I do, I do like the little home, I do this little home row dance thing sometimes. I don't know if you ever do it with your next fingers. I just start like rubbing the J and the F with like the little nubs on there. Yeah. Just to make sure you yeah. know where you are. Yeah, I do, I do uh-huh. this all the time. <laughs> I was actually just doing it now. I need a I need a physical keyboard. I even have for that tablet. I have a uh, 
Bluetooth keyboard. And it's it's fine, but it's not a real keyboard. You know what I mean? It's 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 better than touch typing, but it's not like I, I couldn't imagine like writing on that. So interestingly, or maybe not, I was playing Minecraft for the first time with my boy, like doing like the same not just watching him play, but like playing together. And so I, I cannot do this this tablet thing. So I got had this Bluetooth keyboard and I was using that. And it was fine, but sometimes like I've, like it could not take multiple input. Like if I'm doing trying to like do multiple things at once with it, it would just kind of bork on me. It was really aggravating. I don't know, just like I feel like Bluetooth keyboards are just not very good in general. Like I like I've not met one that I liked. Maybe they exist. I just have never had one. I have a wireless keyboard that's pretty excellent. Those are different. I've had great, a lot of great wireless keyboards, but my issue is a Bluetooth keyboard that doesn't stink. That can, yeah, that I, that's actually responsive. I need a mouse in my hand. I need a keyboard in front of me. It's just how I use a computer. And that's why when I'm on my phone, like my wife will send me a link. Did you look at that link? And I'm like, I haven't been at my computer yet. She's like, well, why don't you just pull it up on your phone? I'm like, because it's useless. Like it's, what am I going to do? <laughs> on you know, like I often think that too. So what I end up doing is like when I find stuff on Twitter, like stuff I want to follow up on later, I just, I'll either email myself a link or I'll somehow capture it so that when I'm back at my computer, I can actually look at it and do something other than, yeah, mobile device, mobile computing. It's just very limiting for me. I, I, I don't enjoy it. So when people are like, oh, I need my phone, I'm like, okay. What I do is I, I, if someone sends me something, oh, okay, and I'll, I'll copy the link into my Telegram saved messages, and then I'll go to the computer and I'll read it there. So until I get to the computer, I'm not looking at it. I don't care. It's not that important to me. Unless it's a funny video, I'm not looking at it. Yeah. Now, a tablet, I will actually read things on websites because it's just big enough that I can actually, but I won't type Maybe it'll be mind control soon enough. <laughs> well, it probably won't work very well. Someone was talking about AI and like uh, smart assistants and, you know, personal assistants, something, something. And I still think Google and Siri, they're all so stupid and completely useless. I can't imagine Alexa or any of those other ones are any better. But and every now and then, naive me, I'll just try it. And I was trying to call my auto mechanic. So I hit the prompt for Google and I said, call Lowe's Auto. I know it's in my phone book. And it said, here are 10 auto repair places near you. And I'm like, (laughs) that's not what I asked you to do. (laughs) Like, not even close. Oh, so frustrating. That's funny. So if they bridge that gap someday where I literally can pick up my phone and tell it to do something and it can understand me and do it, then it'll be a much more useful device. Yeah, I have an Alexa and it's really, I mean, it's okay. I It's unplugged a lot because I don't like it. And it's actually, it's unplugged and in a drawer most of the time. I figure if having no electricity isn't good enough, sitting in a dark wooden drawer is going to keep it even more at bay. But anyway, every once in a while I'll, I'll plug it in and I'll just talk to it to see what it can do and sometimes sometimes it's it's all right but a lot of the times it just doesn't just doesn't work it doesn't seem intuitive you know it's definitely not star trek i mean as much as i want it to be it just seems so far from that it's nice that it gives me notifications you know if something is delayed you know with the amazon prime business but really it's it's not that useful and maybe someday it'll be but i I have no faith that anytime soon it will be something that's really worth it's you know weight and plastic and uh, pcbs I guess if you're using the the very tightly sort of controlled and programmed logic, like if you can understand how it works and maybe you take that into account when you use it, then I guess that would be something that's useful. But I guess I expect it to be intelligent enough that whenever I ask something that it understands and it just doesn't. So uh, maybe someday. And it has to have the voice of Majel Barrett. I'm not going to accept anything else but that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the 
awful voice. Yeah, it's 2020. <laughs> we can't get a decent human humanized voice. Like, nope. <sighs> yeah. So, Eric, I know you're not a huge gamer, and I'm not really either. But I did happen to participate in the Linux game night, and I have to say. I had some fun. I, I only played a, a couple of games uh, toward the end. The uh, I'm not sure on the pronunciation. I think it's Xenotic. X-O-N-O-T-I-C. I think it's Xenotic. It's an open source 3D shooter, you know, run around, shoot each other kind of kind of game. And that was a lot of fun. I didn't even know it existed until yesterday. I thought the gameplay was good. The, the graphics were, from my perspective, were good. I mean, anything better than a PlayStation 2 to me is good. So that tells you where my bar is. It was, you know, really fast action. It was really fun to, to shoot Das Geek and Michael. I got to tell you, it was very satisfying when I, when he, when I bumped them off. I, I tell you, I don't, I, know, I don't know why I feel like that. Uh, maybe some sort of like pent up disagreement that I have, you know, with some of their opinions, but it was tons of fun. Playing with people, you know, is really the secret to those online shooters. One of the reasons that I got away from online gaming in general was I just didn't have a group of people that I could jump in and play with and just have fun with. Because when I was younger and I started playing those types of games, I found communities of people and it was fun to play because it was the same people. And it was more competitive that way too, because you were fighting the same people and you kind of got to learn their, you know, their tricks. Well, I can say with uh, the Linux game night with uh, DLN, that was fun. Oh, there was one guy named T. Earl Grey or Earl Grey T, something like that. He kept kicking all of our fannies. We didn't know who he was, but I liked his name because it was T. Earl Grey and how can you not like that or Earl Grey T. And knowing, you know, who you're you're playing, I, that, does, that definitely makes a big difference. You know, once upon a time when I used to uh, online game with Descent when it was new, Descent 3, <laughs> 20 years ago. Excellent game though. Yes. The Descent series was, that was an excellent, captivating. What's funny is if you look back at it now, it looks so rudimentary, I guess you would say, but it was just, it didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't need to be, this is a complete rant and <laughs> tangent, but I, there's so much emphasis placed on how good things look that I feel like sometimes we miss the boat on how fun they are to play. I agree. And it was, it's interesting you say that too, because uh, my boy, my oldest, he's eight, almost nine. And he wanted something older, some older game. And I said, well, why, why do you like the older games? The graphics aren't as good. And he says, it's not about the graphics. It's about how fun the game is. Wow, boy, somebody raised you well. <laughs> and I agree. It's entirely true. He likes the, um, the 16-bit, like when he does Mario Maker, he likes the 16-bit uh, you know, Super Mario World. He thinks it's just as good and there's something fun about the pixels. He likes the pixels. I agree, though. I, I think that it's all about the fun. And if the fun holds up, then it's a good game. If the fun doesn't hold up, then yeah, maybe it's not such a good game. We brought it up on Biddle this last week about owning your own games and the idea of licensing content versus owning it. Yep. And the idea that with a console in the old days, when you had a cartridge, you owned that game in perpetuity. And I mean, there weren't, not all games were great, right? But there were certainly some just marquee, amazing games. And in terms of replayability and gameplay and enjoyment, the value you got for what you spent on those games was outrageous. And the fact that you can still play them today is, I mean, it just continues to be valuable. Right. Yeah. The, the idea that so many of these games are tied to online services and really they are supported as long as the company supports the servers that run them. And as soon as they don't want to do that anymore, then the game is dead. What's interesting is uh, Interplay, who made Descent so many years ago, they are no more. But before they died, they open sourced Descent 1 and 2. 
And you can go on Discord now. And I'm part of, not that I participate, but I'm part of four different dissent groups that still get together and play. They run their own servers. And so that game can live on because it was open sourced and because there's a community that keeps it alive. And I think there's something to be said for that. You know, maybe it's not as good as a cartridge, you know, in some some aspects, but they're they're still tweaking the graphics a little bit, but keeping the compatibility and so forth. And yeah, when you when you look at Descent one or two compared to today's games, the graphics are not as cool. But they've done some things to it to enable OpenGL graphics and, and dynamic lighting and, and so forth that, yeah, sure, it's still a little bit dated, but it's more enjoyable to play. The, it supports higher resolution screens. And I mean, there's something to be said for that. Now, those textures, they could probably they could probably use a little update. But, uh, but outside of that, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty impressive what, what an open source community rallied around something can do to old software. But circling it back to the game night, you didn't jump in, you had fun, you played the shooter... And- and then what? Probably golf with friends. I missed the golf with friends. I was tied up with things, but I did get to play the uh, Super Tux Cart, and that's not too bad. Ah, yeah. I, I, mine was a little bit herky jerky, though. I don't know if it was my system or maybe the, maybe the compositor was interfering with something. I don't know. But it, at times, it get a little bit herky jerky. Even though the graphics are not as intense as the Xenotic, I got, I got to figure that one out. Um, but yeah, that's actually that was a lot more fun than I thought too. I ha- I've had it installed, but I've never really played it. The toilet plunger or whatever, maybe it's not a toilet plunger, maybe it's a sink plunger. I don't know. Shooting that off and, and grabbing a cart in front of you and pulling it back. There's something pretty funny about that, honestly. <laughs> that the the power ups are are not you know the the Nintendo power ups of Mario Kart, but I think they're um, they're uniquely their own, and it's not bad. It's it's actually a pretty decent game. It is. It's a fun game. I'm surprised you were having some issues, but it's not particularly graphically demanding, so you can run it on modest hardware and still have a reasonably good experience. And I think it was very recently that they added the online matchmaking component, right? I think so, yeah. Because I did not know about that in in years past. I mean, it worked really well, and I think you can have up to 12 players at once, which that's pretty awesome. It was a lot of fun. And I think the point of the game night was to raise money for the DLN charity Free Geek, Yep, it was. I know Zeb had done his 24 hours of trucking, his 24-hour stream, raised quite a bit of money, and I believe this DLN game night raised some money as well. So, yeah, fun times and for a good cause, so... But they did raise quite a bit of money, though. I don't know, it was over $2,000. right, last week on Destination Linux, they talked about setting up a lug, or participating in lugs anyway. So Ryan and Michael, they've set up lugs in their areas, have, you know, and they're, they're talking about like meetup versus get together. I've never used any of them. Uh, I don't know if you have. I have. I've used meetup and I was using it for a while, but I know that they just made it so that it's not a free service anymore. And I think for smaller organizations, that's probably something that is prohibitive because it's, you know, just another cost that someone has to, to pay for. Ryan actually made mention of the fact that how do you deal with financing a lug and do you ask for contributions or people to pay to participate and then you limit who's going to show up. Because Meetup is such a popular outlet or, or you know, means of people finding these things, if you're not using it, even though Get Together is, is a really great alternative, I've actually played around with it. It's just not as well known. So you really have to get the word out there and publicize it. But the point about financing it and do you provide food and what's the uh, venue and there's a lug near me in Tampa. Unfortunately, it's held during the week and during like rush hour traffic. And so it's just, it's a challenge for me to find the time to drive up there. It's far enough away and with the traffic, it would be several hours to get there for essentially a one hour meeting. 
I've thought about, could I do something locally? Would there be enough people? But I just haven't quite gotten around to doing it. I am wondering if if I do that, what do I do? Am I going to pay for a meetup? I'm going to try get together. And so I think the logistics of of setting up a lug, running a lug, there's a lot to sort of think about there. But again, I, I really think it could be rewarding to have those local people to engage with and interact with and build that community. Yep, I think so too. I don't know very many Linux users locally. I should say I know more now than I have. I think it'd be fun to set up something. I said, I don't know how I would get even people to look at a meetup or look at a any form of group finder out there outside of putting something on the billboard in the local grocery store, you know, if you know what I mean. But setting up like a, a local Linux user group or even a computer user group or retro computer user group or anything of that nature. I do think that'd be fun and rewarding and would be a really good time, you know, to, to just to talk to fellow nerds. You know, you're a good 24-hour drive from me. <laughs> There's something to be said for that actual human contact and, and having somebody sit there and, you know, next to you and show you how to do something. Because, you know, as, as good as online video conferencing may be and, and so forth, there there is something to be said for, for actual human contact and, and, and learning and having it be more than just a... flashing lights on a screen, as it were. Absolutely. Completely agree. I think the idea of being in a room with someone and just having that intimacy of actually sitting there in the same physical location in person, it's it's never going to be the same online, even though you can attract a much larger audience. And it's, you know, as we've seen with Destination Linux Network and stuff like that, where we've got people from all around the world and they're on Telegram and they're in discourse and stuff like that. But it's definitely not the same as just getting together and being there present and having those conversations and interactions. So what do you think? Snacks or no snacks? If let's say you were to start a Linux users group, would you provide snacks? You know, would, would you, you make something? Would you buy something? Is that how, what, do you, what do you think the rules are there? I think it would be fun to make things. So if you, it was almost like, be like a potluck in a way where okay. if people would just bring snacks uh, rather than going to a place and ordering things, I, I, the venue would probably dictate that to some degree as well. If you're going to sure. a place that's selling food and you're bringing food, you'd have to make sure that was okay with them. All right. Yeah. Um, if you're renting the space, you know, that kind of thing, I'm sure it would be okay. But if you could have a space where you were bringing your own things, I think it would be fun to make snacks or bring snacks and everybody kind of bring something. So I, I, I trust my cooking and my confection making abilities, but there's always this fear at a potluck that someone's going to bring like a hot mayonnaise salad that you know is going to make everybody sick. You know, one of those, <laughs> one of those situations. And you don't want to be rude and I, I just, I fear the hot mayonnaise salad, especially in summertime. But just think of the memories. Just think of the <laughs> just, memories, you know. The, mem- the, the, the memories in the, in the restroom. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Uh-oh. Brad brought the hot mayonnaise salad again. All right. Another topic on Destination Linux, show 158. The interview guest was Hayden Barnes of Canonical. He is working on WSL, and it was great to have his perspective and to get his background of where he was coming from and how he got on board with Canonical and some of the work they've been doing there. If you've been listening to Destination Linux, you've heard a lot of the skepticism that the guys have about WSL and Microsoft and Linux and Canonical's involvement with that. And 
just these all these changes that have happened in recent last year or so, the whole Microsoft loves Linux marketing campaign. There's a lot of sort of incredulity and skepticism on their part. And it's not unfounded. I mean, certainly the history is there, but I think I've certainly had a much more optimistic view of what's happening and think that it's a good thing. I think to the contrary of, again, of many other people in the community, not just Destination Linux, but it was great to have Hayden come on and actually give that perspective of why is Canonical interested in this? Why is this important? Why is WSL so transformative? What is the kind of feedback they're getting? There was just a lot of discussion around things like, what does this do to the adoption of Linux? Does it actually dilute it? Does it take away from it? Does it make Linux on the desktop uh, less important because of WSL? It was a really, really great conversation with a lot of different facets and angles and perspectives. So if you haven't listened to it, you really should, because it's one of those things that I think a lot of people really haven't settled on. You know, do I think this is a good idea? Do I not think it's a good idea? Why are they doing this? And so to have him come on and give that perspective really helped me. It it sort of confirmed a lot of the things that I had already believed and thought to be true. And it was also nice to see that he did, I felt like he swayed them at least a little in terms of why it's important and why it's being pursued. I thought the interview started a little bit and maybe it was just I was uh, projecting. It seemed a little more uh, very critical toward Hayden because there's been talk of why should Canonical invest any dollars into WSL? I think Hayden described himself as the the Microsoft guy, uh, the Canonical's Microsoft guy or something like that. And on, on one side, I, I can see the argument, you know, why would Canonical, a you know, relatively small company, be investing dollars to help a multi-million dollar or maybe it's billion dollar company, Microsoft, in, in developing Linux for Windows? I, I can understand. I can understand the position. Why would that be done? But at the same time, you know, I think the way Linux has won over and over again is by being being the open uh, open platform, being the, we're not keeping things only for us, but we're making it available. And the way I saw it, the way I looked at it was, by being an open platform, they're making it easier for that transition to Linux. Maybe even if someone has no desire to go to Linux, but if, that, if, that, if the software starts to flow, if there are tools that flow, and you know, at some point in time, they may not even care if they're moving to Linux. I think, I think there's a, you know, like, like Hayden said, you know, they're, they're playing the long game, not the short game. Short game is it, it looks like it could take away from Linux, but the long game is it's very possible that there'll be more people moving to Linux because of just how open it is, the open feel that, that it provides. And I think I, I take that position as well. I personally say you're never going to be able to stand against Microsoft or against any huge corporation and, and be able to, to make any real headway, really. You can't win a force-on-force battle when you're, you're, when you're tiny, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Linux has won you know, in areas that were underserved. And now that they're serving an area, you know, as far as helping Microsoft, I guess you could say, they're just showing the, the quality of the community, the quality of the, of the development, the, the, the quality of the applications, many of the applications. And, and I think that's just going to build goodwill more than anything else. I think it's a good thing because it means also if I have to be stuck on Windows at a future time, you know, I can retreat to a, a nice safe place that, that's called the terminal because it's there, because it is an option now, when before it was not an option at all. I've seen two major areas of concern, if I have to sort of boil it down and simplify it. One is Microsoft's history of embrace 
extend, extinguish, which I just don't see as a possibility with open source because it's open source. So if anything, they're going to take it and hopefully contribute and add back and actually add value and make tools that are useful and extend projects in meaningful ways. I think we're already seeing that to some degree. The collaboration with Canonical, yes, it's Canonical developing and dedicating resources, but ultimately it's within an ecosystem that's getting a lot of attention and a lot of traction. So they're going to have more users, even if they're using WSL and not an Ubuntu desktop proper, they're still going to get so much feedback and so much use that it's going to expand what they can do. And so I think that makes sense. I, there's, I don't see any way that Microsoft can actually extend anything. I think the embrace and extend is about as far as it can go, and it's going to benefit everybody. Whether or not you choose to use WSL or full Linux desktop, I really do think it's going to be a positive thing in the long run. One of the things that Hayden talked about was, you know, Microsoft is very much focused on Azure and how important that is to them and how big Linux is in that. And like you said, the reality is that a lot of people have to use Windows for some reason. And if you now have access to WSL, you can use Windows and actually have great tools on top of Windows to not only just do the Windows-y things that you need to do, but now you've also extended that capability. I don't think that's going to preclude everybody from wanting to run a Linux desktop, it's going to make it so that in the situation where it makes sense to run Windows with WSL, you can do that easily. And when you want to run a Linux desktop, you can do that and you've got PowerShell and you've got other capabilities. So we talk about all the time, well, why isn't the Linux desktop more prevalent on the enterprise side of things. And one of the reasons is there just really hasn't been great tools. There isn't things like Active Directory and easy ways to manage a fleet of Linux desktops. And so maybe that's something that comes out of this is that, you know, all of a sudden Linux is an option in the enterprise where it just wasn't before. And the second major thing that I always see is the commentary about diluting the Linux desktop. And if, well, if someone can run it on WSL, why would they ever choose to run it, you know, full desktop? And that's actually gutting Linux or it's taking away the market share or it's, again, I think it's exposure. So as more and more developers or systems engineers or cloud ops, like people who are using these tools have access to WSL and whatever tools come in the future, there's no reason that you couldn't or wouldn't want to run a Ubuntu desktop or any other you know, Linux distribution that has access to these tools. So is it possible in the short term that maybe WSL is, is sort of steals some of the thunder or maybe erodes some of the user base? I don't think it's going to take away from people that are already using Linux on the desktop. And as more people maybe become familiar with it? Will there be a huge ad uptick in adoption? Maybe not, but I think it does introduce the concepts. And I, th you know, and I know, and anyone who's using Linux knows who's also used Windows, if you choose to use Linux, it's because you see the value in the way that the system runs. It's just easier to maintain. It's usually more performant, more secure, more stable, and people will discover those things for themselves. So the exposure of getting this out there and having more people come in contact with it, them understanding like, wow, this is actually really good and I, everything works the way I need it to, and I can do my job and all of the things I need to do. I think ultimately it's a, again, it's a positive thing. It's another roadblock removed is what it is. That's what it boils down to. It's another roadblock for someone to adopt it is being removed because of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's useful. It solves a problem and people want it. It is that simple.
So in the last Linux for Everyone, Jason Evangel interviewed Dustin Kreisak of the Ubuntu Budgie Project. He was talking about how pretty much anybody can become a contributor and make a difference in the free and open source community you know, by contributing to a project in so many ways, not just in code, you know, but in, in artistic skills, in advocacy, or in helping in the, in the forums, helping other people you know, work through problems and whatnot. But the part that stuck out the most to me and really made me think was how many core developers were actually part of the Ubuntu Budgie project. Now, you know, being an outsider, not really knowing much about the project itself, I figured they had, you know, a few dozen people at least, you know, working on it. But I think he, he said that as far as like core developers, there's like Dustin and it was like a handful of few other people. And then there's a lot of drive-by contributors. So it sounded like like a core group of, of maybe just under a dozen people. And that's kind of concerning because, you know, if, if someone, you know, if a piece of that community becomes disconnected for whatever reason, you know, a life event or, you know, something happens where they, they just don't have the time, you know, there's a hiccup of sorts in life that can affect the project. I can't help but wonder what is a stumbling block? What, what keeps somebody from wanting to be able to contribute? Or is there like a fear or or of like lack of knowledge, or what, what do you suppose holds people back from contributing? Developing for a project is more than just grabbing the code and hacking on it and, you know, coming up with a solution and posting it back. It's learning the people. There's a bit of a culture, there's a bit of a community, and really understanding how the dynamics of it work. The tools are one thing, and the sort of process that goes with checking things out, checking things back in, submitting, all of that sort of stuff. But I think it comes down to who's driving things and what direction there is and what types of things get worked on. It is a small handful of people in most cases. Now, Dustin did talk about because it's an official Ubuntu flavor, they do have a certain measure of support above and beyond just that core group of people. So they can ask for help, and I've seen this myself with a lot of these teams where different people from different flavors will pitch in and, you know, you'll have someone from the Mate team helping someone on, on one of the other flavors. And it's not uncommon for that to happen. I think he even mentioned that, that it was, you know, because they are a flavor and because they have the support of the other flavors and of, to some extent, canonical as well, they sort of have that backing and they have a foundation to work from. When I think of independent distributions, even if they're based on Ubuntu or some other larger distro, they're in the same exact situation. Like let's Endeavor, I think, is a good example, right? They're based on Arch, but they are running their own distribution, and it's a very small team of people. There's core developers, but then there are people who are doing, you know, translation and testing and artwork and documentation and QA, and you have all these different roles that need to be filled. And for any of that to get done, someone has to be leading it and pushing it. And most of these people, I mean, this isn't, they're, they're not making money off of this. Uh, so it's either a passion project or something they're doing because they're trying to learn a skill or they use it and they, they really enjoy it and want to see it persist and continue. But this is where we come down to when you look at some project like Manjaro, where they recently incorporated because after many years of doing this, and it really, Manjaro is a pretty big project, but even there, they you'd probably be surprised by how few people really are in there as core full-time developers or trusted developers or people who are really moving the project forward. Yes, there's a lot of contributors and there's a lot of people helping 
sort of above that level, but that was the position they were in where they had so many users and they thought, look, you know, for this project to be solvent and to continue and to have some measure of security that we can continue doing this and keep the lights on, incorporating and having a, a fund and having a trust essentially for, for this to continue, it is Open source software, you know, we say free and open source software. I feel like I, I have to continually remind people that free does not mean without cost. Free means open and that is available and freely available. But if you love something and you find use in it, especially if you make money using it, I think that you should be contributing back. I know I'm, I'm getting off in the weeds a little bit here, but all of this is in, interconnected, right? This idea that it's free and open source, the fact that it's not really free, somebody somewhere is either giving their time or their money or their passion, whatever it is. And it is amazing to see how few people it takes to drive something forward. And I think so much of that because it's not a financial incentive. It's purely their desire and drive to do it. And you're right. It puts a lot of projects, I think, in jeopardy of maybe just if that person, you know, that or that team, that small group of people who are dedicated for whatever reason, can't deliver on it. And hey, you and I, have, we've seen this with just making a podcast. <laughs> I mean, it's, life gets in the way. I mean, it's its difficult. Things happen. You get busy. People get sick. You know, anything could happen. We really take it for granted, I think, in a lot of cases. You know, it is interesting to think the free part of the free and open source is not always beneficial to those that are doing the work. And I think we've said this many times before. There's often a lack of thank yous and appreciation by some people in the Linux community. And that's, that's unfortunate. And so, you know, I think about developers like Dustin and so forth that, you know, they put their heart and soul into something. Yeah, you know, there's a lot really riding on them. There's got to be some stress involved in their volunteer, in their in their passion project. It's really no wonder some people get burned out. And it, it really is kind of, this is a call out to people who, if you have some sort of skill or ability, or there's something that you can do, you can contribute. There's always something you do to contribute to those communities that you're using the software that they produce. I mean, even if it's just helping with documentation, bug, rep- I mean, maybe not like official bug reporting, but you know, getting into the forums or, or telegram type chats and in a polite and kind and beneficial way talking about problems or you know, even just seeing how you can volunteer. I was actually looking and they have um there's a get involved section on the Ubuntu Budgie forum. Translations is the their, their top one right now, but there's there's always something you know you can do to help them out. You know, 2004 is not that far away. Two months testing. If you got an extra laptop or you got an extra hard drive or something, there's there's always something you can do just to give, you know, if you can just give just a little bit back, it's really worth a lot to these projects. We benefit from these things. The very least we could do is be appreciative. There's nothing wrong with criticism as long as it's constructive and not mean-spirited. Try not to be disparaging. Try to remember these are just normal people doing things, you know, that interest them or that they have a passion for. And I think the worst thing you can do is to just be like, I don't like this. It's terrible and has no merit. They want to hear feedback. They're not just building something in a void and don't expect to get any kind of feedback. But if we could just be constructive and say thank you when we mean it and give feedback, criticism where it is warranted, if we feel it's warranted, but back it up, right? If I'm going to criticize something, I really try to have something behind it. Not just I don't like this or it's dumb or like some meaningless feedback. I really try to say, say, well, this doesn't work for me because of this, to really try to articulate that. And there are certainly times where I just don't like something and that's okay. But if I genuinely just don't like something and I don't even have a really good reason for it, there's nothing wrong with me keeping that opinion to myself. 
Well, we've reached the end of another episode. As always, we'd like to continue the discussion with you. We have got Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for more information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators. The website is at destinationlinux.network. For more information on where to find us, I like to hang out on the DLN Discourse forum and all of my social information as well as links to my YouTube channel and things like that are on destinationlinux.network under the creators section. You can also find me at the destinationlinux.network site under creators or you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular written blatherings, podcast, and other things are there. And as always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everybody. Take care, everyone. See yous.